0: Hear O our God hear all our God, for we are despised. Turn back their town on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we build the wall and all the war was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. But when St. Balat and Tobiah and the Arabs and Amorites, Ammonites and Ashtodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall." And our enemies said, they will know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At the time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and cords of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other." And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he bowed. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held their spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that there may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the God who followed me. None of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand, that ends the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. Let's ask for his help and blessing one more time. Gracious Lord, I am in desperate need of your help. For here are your people that have come to hear from you, not from a man. So Lord, I pray that you get me out of your way, that what will come out of my mouth will be your very word. I pray that the word will be for your people's good, but ultimately for your glory. This we ask in Jesus' name. All God's people say. Amen. One of my heroes in this entire world is Albert Muller. So I don't know if that is helpful. I don't know what you think of Albert Muller, but at least I'm just speaking for myself. (laughs) He is the president of one of the largest seminaries, the mighty Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I don't know how much you know about them, but in the 80s and 90s, the ones theologically conservative institution was shifting theologically and was becoming liberal. You know what they were doing? They began hiring professors who did not believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible. So what did they do to counter that? They hired a young man of then 33 years old, Albert Muller to be the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And the first thing that he did amongst other things was to ask the professors to sign the doctrinal statement. Some refused. One particular person was a woman who refused to sign, and this is what she said to Albert Muller of the Docturnal Statement, and I quote, I can make it mean whatever I want it to mean. Muller said, you're fired. (laughs) She said, you can't fire me. I have a contract. To that Muller responded, I can make it mean whatever I want it to mean. (laughs) Albert Muller fought battles that an average person would have resigned in no time. Can you imagine going to work, not to Boeing or to Microsoft, but a Christian work? Going to work every day with people that do not want you there. Today, it's 30 years since Albert Muller became the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Talk of a man of steel, right? Talk of a man of courage. But I believe you have to ask Albert Muller, how did he do this? He'll probably say, I don't know. But I believe this is what he'll say. The hand of God was with me. Today, the SBTS is a flourishing institution with thousands of students, if you had to include their uh, college, boys college. But how did this happen? I want to believe it took a man willing to do what he believed God called him to do despite difficulties despite opposition. And this is actually a shadow of what we're going to look at this morning from our passage in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 to 23. And again, maybe from the onset, I need to remind you that this book is not really about a building project. This book is really not about Christian leadership. This book is also really not about Nehemiah himself. This book is about God. It's about God's glory and ultimately this book is about the need for the work of Jesus to make a place for God's name to dwell forever. Jeremiah, excuse me, I keep saying Jeremiah, but it's actually Nehemiah. So if you hear Jeremiah Jeremiah, just remembers Nehemiah. <laughs> just a bit of our context here. Chapter 1, we are told a message has come. We just call this uh, uh, the White House. Of course, it wasn't the White House. This was in the Persian Empire. He was serving the Persian uh, king. The man in charge in the White House in Persia is Nehemiah. He's a Jew who probably has never been to Jerusalem. But the news has reached him that there's great trouble in Jerusalem. This is Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. He has been told that the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So, how should he have responded? Perhaps maybe Nehemiah It could have been his right for him to be able to say, no, okay, what does this have to do with me? After all, he's comfortable serving the Persian king. He's well taken care of. His family is good. But look at chapter 1, verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah hears bad news. He's touched and he prays, then takes action. Then he does almost the unthinkable. You know what he does? He approaches the king looking sad. And the king notices something is not right with Nehemiah. And the king says this must be sickness, sadness rather, of the heart. And chapter 2 verse 3 says, Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Here's a man who probably has never been to Jerusalem, but he's actually burdened by the plight of the people of God in Jerusalem. And he approaches the king, and the king asks him, What do you want? In other words, what is your need? And it's interesting, before you respond to the king, we are actually told he did something. What did he do? He prayed. He prayed. So that's the uh, context. The war in Jerusalem is broken down. And here's a man who raises his hand and says, I'll do something about it. So what's the issue with Jerusalem being in ruins? Amongst other things, this meant the worship of God it's not taking place. This is actually the issue and Nehemiah can't just be passive. So I want us to look at three responses to crisis we need to know. Three responses to crisis we need to know so we'll persevere. You know what's the reality? When it comes to difficulties or trials, It's either as you're sitting here, listen to me, it's either you're going through a trial. You're going through a trial or you're going into a trial or you're coming from a trial. Choose one. Do you know what it's called? The normal Christian life. So how do you respond? Number one, Recognize the difficulty. And this is from verses 1 to 3, verse 8, 10 to uh, 12. We see in chapter 4, what is happening now is Nehemiah has responded to the call. The work actually has begun, as you see in chapter 3. The work actually is halfway through. As the work is almost completion, you see now there is Opposition. We have only seen Nehemiah approach the king. And the king asked him, what are you looking for? Then the king gave Nehemiah what he needed. Now, would you think all oh, now is well? Okay, we are, we are good. Nehemiah has asked for the needs for him to go to Jerusalem. Is everybody excited? Is everybody happy? Friends, listen. If you ever assume a task that God has given you, and if you do God's task, if you do the task God's way, expect opposition. Yes, expect opposition. So the first thing to recognize is that there will be difficulties. There will be people. Who will not want you to do what God has called you to do? And what is even painful is some people may actually say they're following the same God. You know where I come from? One thing I don't understand is the pressure, the difficulties young people face from parents, especially when they want to do what is right in God's sight. Here's what happened. Boy meets girl, and then the boy, unlike here, here if you want to get married, you don't go to the parents directly, you don't go to the father of the, of the girl. You go to the uncles. You go to the uncles to communicate your intentions, and for most part, these uncles, they always put stumbling blocks. In other words, they charge ridiculous amount of money if you want to pursue a woman Charges that you wonder. I mean, imagine people as poor as they may be being charged up to $10,000. They call it bride price. Now, if the boy has money, that's okay. But the truth of the matter is, even if it's $1,000, most people wouldn't be able to afford that. So, usually, these are stumbling blocks, I believe they promote a lot of immorality. Because what happens then, if this person wants to pursue the woman, wants to do what is right, but there's these stumbling blocks, guess what may happen in some cases? The girl falls pregnant. You know what they do now? The same parents who are putting stumbling blocks, when the girl is falling pregnant, now they want to do things hush hush. So that... They should save themselves from shame. And sometimes the difficulties might just be parents, well-meaning or misguided parents want the wedding of the year at the expense of their children. The point I'm making is simply this. Many times if people want to do what is right, they face opposition. They face difficulties. Now back to Nehemiah, no one is cheering him. Again, this guy has left a comfortable job at a palace to come and build the walls. Can you imagine his family member saying, Nehemiah, how can you leave your job at Microsoft? (laughs) To go and be a pastor? Are you thinking? Just stay and serve the king. After all, the king adores you. The king trusts you. He pays you well, brothers and sisters. You and I were never served to play it safe. Opposition is inevitable. Look at verse one. Now, when Sanballat heard that we're building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers, and of the army of Samaria, "What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves?" Do you see that? The work is going on, and some people are not happy. How do you see the work is going on? If you go to chapter 3, look at verse number 2. We are told the men of Jericho built, and the men of Zakkah built. Verse 3 the sons of Hanesa built the fish gate. Verse 4 memory of her repaired. Verse 5, there's a bit of a sad development. There's some people that are, are passive. Verse 6, we're told, Joy repaired the gate. On and on it goes. And when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the others, they see the work is flourishing, the work is progressing, we are told they are angry. What's going on here? Maybe one word. Envy. Perhaps this is Jealousy. Sanballat was envious of Nehemiah's work. Nehemiah's are shine. And he resorted to insults and ridicule. This is what we're seeing him doing by jeering the Jews. Look at this too. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Question. Will they restore it for themselves? Question. See, he's calling the people that are working and he's calling them feeble. Is that a compliment? Brother, sister, if you're doing what God has called you to do, and if you do it God's way, don't expect that there will always be compliments. Expect opposition. And San Balad continues with his rant. Says, will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? I wonder if we have any sand ballads in Seattle. Maybe that means nothing. I wonder if we have any sand ballads at EBC. One man said in a court. A critic that isn't willing to do anything shouldn't be entertained by masses that are busy working, end quote. Of course, look at verse 3. We see here an armchair critic. Tobiah, that is, the Ammonite, was beside him. He was beside uh, Sanballat. And he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will, break, he will break down their stone wall. Do you see that? Yes, Sanballat was wrong, but Tobiah is not actually a friend Sanballat needs. He's supposed to bring his friend to order, but he's actually now even steering his friend all the more to do what is wrong. But again, these guys were very persistent in in their opposition. Look at verse 7. But when St. and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the bridges were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. You see that? Verse 8. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. The difficulty is just not slowing down. Verse 10, in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. In fact, some people are saying even within themselves, this is impossible. Not only there were verbal threats, there were even death threats. Verse 11. And our enemies said, they they will not know or see till We come among them and kill them and stop the work. And verse 12, even people within. So guys, just give it up. Just give it up. And the time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us, how many times? Ten times. I mean, if somebody comes to you ten times telling you that whatever you're doing, just stop it, give it up, it's not gonna work, it is impossible. So the threats are not just verbal, even they're from within, but other threats are even different. So, all this is tell us if you're gonna do God's work, do it his way. Expect difficulties. Recognize there will be difficulties. And there's a word that uh, find helpful. I don't know if it's in your dictionaries, but it's a word called stickability. Stickability. Stick with the task. that is difficult full of hostility and opposition. Are you not encouraged by the apostles? Are the apostles, when they were so much uh, filled of zeal to reach out to the lost, what will happen? They will go to one city, they will beat them up. What do they do? They will dust themselves up and go to another city. And when they were fortunate, they will just put them in prison. At times, it went far worse. Remember, Paul and Silas even Acts, when we were in prison, the Bible tells us, what were they doing? They were singing. Singing. It wasn't pleasant. But they did recognize that it was not pleasant. But they actually said they considered themselves worthy to suffer for Christ's name. If maybe it was some of us, when we face difficulties, the temptation perhaps maybe will be like, oh, it must not be God's will. They had a sense of purpose. Nehemiah had a sense of purpose. The the apostles had a sense of purpose. They knew their mission. And they were told by their master himself, it will involve suffering. Because Jesus himself told his disciples, in this world, you will face what? Trouble. So don't be surprised when we face trouble. And he said to them, If anyone will come after me, let him what? Deny himself, carry his cross, and follow me. That sounds like a difficult call to me. And it is. But those that have a sense of purpose, the forge are heard. They do get code names. They do get ashamed. They're easily misunderstood. In fact, if you're not willing to be misunderstood, you're not ready to be the disciple of Jesus Christ. A follower that will do mighty exploits. And if you're you're a student of history, you realize that the men we hold in much esteem today were not actually respected in their time. Jesus Christ himself was not respected in his time. Even his hometown rejected him. We know Paul was torn at Lystra, and some thought he was dead in Acts chapter 14. But this is what he said in Acts chapter 14, verse 22. What are they doing? Strengthen the souls of the disciples, encourage them to continue in the faith. And saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, following Jesus Christ's war. The normal Christian life is a battle. And this is what we're seeing here in uh, uh, Nehemiah chapter number 4. We have to look at what Nehemiah looked. He Recognize difficulty, but let's move forward. Respond with dependency. We have looked at first point, which is recognizing the difficulty, but second, respond with dependency. Look at verse number four. Perhaps you wonder, will this guy finish? Only verse 4. Relax, we'll finish. I've been told the cloak is, is, is staring at you. <laughs> but this bring, they bring the cloak, we bring the calendar. Verse 4. How did Nehemiah respond? With dependence. Look at verse 4. There's this opposition, there's this difficulty. Verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their town ...on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. In the midst of difficulty, hostility and opposition, he did not have an attitude of defeat... What else did he not do? Nehemiah did not go for therapy. (laughs) He was not depressed. He was not anxious. Nehemiah did not look within. He looked at the source of real power. Look at verse 4. Yes, and Baral and Tobiah have despised him. And Nehemiah says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. You know what he's doing? He's praying. He's responding to the enemy's insults. He's depending on the one who alone can give him real power. Look at verse 9. But before we get to verse 9, again, look at verse 7 and 8. But when they sent Barat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all prodded together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And how did he respond again with dependence? Verse 9 and we prayed to our God and set a God as a protection against them day and night. Do you see the, the resilience in this guy? Do you see? He's not focused on the insults of the enemies. He's a man who's facing far worse than you probably ever face. But what does he do? He responds through prayer. Do you see dependence there? Haven't we been commanded that instead of being anxious, we are to pray? In Philippians 4. See, the enemy's agenda was that the rebuilding of the walls should not be accomplished. The enemy's Will not give up. And this needed a man who is resilient. A man who is going to be dependent on God himself. This is what I call holy stubbornness. (laughs) And this reminds me of Caleb and Joshua. Remember Caleb and Joshua. Book of Numbers chapter 13. They have been sent to go and spy the land with 12 other men. Now they have returned with the report. And this is what they said. We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. That's a report of the ten. That's a report of the majority. But enter Caleb, verse 30 of Numbers 14. It says, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go. We are not able to go to the people, for they are stronger than we are. We seemed ourselves like grasshoppers, so we seemed to them. Friends, now here's the issue. Here's what Caleb said. If the Lord delights in us, if the Lord delights in us, he'll bring us into this land and give it into us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. The Lord is with us. Do you see where their courage came from? The Lord is with us. I was blessed on Friday morning. One of the men prayed and his prayer was, we are not asking that you be here because we know you never leave us. That just blessed my heart. Caleb and Joshua seem to believe that. Nehemiah seemed to believe that. My question is, is this your disposition this morning? Courage from a Christian is a disposition that believes that God is on my side. God is with me. No matter the difficulties, no matter the trials I am facing, this God is with me. They responded with prayer, but how else did they respond? Look at verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid. Do you see that? Yes, they prayed. And he said, do not be afraid. What else are they doing? He says, remember the Lord. Who is this Lord? Nehemiah reminds us, as he was facing difficulties, as he was facing trials, painful trials, he said, this God, he is great, but he's not only great, but he's also what? He's awesome. Do you believe that? He's depending on the character of God as he's facing what may be impossibilities. He is convinced that this God that he believes is not only great, but he's awesome. Are you convinced that this God of yours, is amazing, he's awesome, he's the God that allowed the Israelites to pass on the Red Sea as if it was a dry ground. He was able to provide manna in the wilderness, When they were thirsty, provided water. You know, what is sometimes difficult is for me to believe that God, who has taken me from primary school, from high school, from seminary, he has enabled me to get married. Seven, eight years of our marriage, we just could not conceive. But later on, the Lord enabled us to conceive. And the Lord has been so amazing to us. Instead of me using all those as monuments, that this God is great and awesome. Sometimes I question if indeed he's awesome. Nehemiah did not do that. He's depending on the character of God. And we know because he did that, all that Tobiah and Salabar did was just that making noise. In light of who their God is, all the threats they made, he was able to compare that with the person, the character of God. And Nehemiah is saying, our God is awesome. He's beyond description. When you face crisis in a room this size, I imagine that there are some people are facing some severe trials, some severe difficulties. But I'm here to remind you, remember the Lord. This God has been so faithful that he will not break his faithfulness because of you. You and I are not so special that God will cease to be awesome. He will cease to be great because he is delaying to answer your prayer or your need. I'm reminded even of Peter, history tells us Apostle Peter's wife, she was actually killed and Peter watched that. Can you imagine the torture that Peter must have gone through and history tells us Peter said this to the wife as she's being killed, remember the Lord. Nehemiah is saying remembering the Lord is a strategy of fighting for your brothers, for your sons, for your daughters, for your wives, and for your homes. That's what he's saying in verse 14 there. I don't know about here, but where I come from, many professing Christians in Malawi seem to have so much head knowledge about the character and attributes of God, but never allowing that to help them to respond to life's crises appropriately. What else do we remember? Yes, we remember that our God is awesome. Our God is great. But look at verse 20. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will do what? Will fight for us. He'll fight for us. Friends, whatever you face, if you are a genuine child of God, whatever painful trial you face, whatever difficulty you face, if there's anything I want to remind you is this, your difficulty is never without help. We have looked at the need to recognize the difficulty. Then respond in dependency. Now finally realize your duty. That's verses 6, 15 and 16. Look at verse 6. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. I mean, the people having a mind to work is a gift from God. I was actually comforted. I was like, oh, man, I thought maybe we, it's only at the Reformation Bible Church where we have to appeal for volunteers to come. You know, we've just started our Sunday school for children, and it took us time to bring in volunteers to come and serve in our Sunday school. And I come here in the morning, I'm seeing on the screen, they're also appearing for volunteers. I'm like, oh, thank you, Lord. It's not just us. What's the point? Of all for this? We need yes to recognize our challenges. There's difficulties. Yes, we respond with dependence, but at the same time, we can't be passive. We can't be passive. Nehemiah here is not just raising his hand and saying, "Oh, we are tired. The difficulty is too much." Guess what he does? He goes and he calls. Everyone to work. As you see in verse 6, so we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to have its height. Why? For what purpose? The people had a mind to work, the people were dedicated to work. Yes, there was opposition, it was dangerous, but the people realized they had a duty to fulfill. Even this uh, work that the Lord has entrusted you, if this work is going to flourish, it will take each and everyone seeing it. This is their responsibility to make this work uh, flourish. Look at verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the war each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of uh, uh, Judah. Do you see what's going on here? Despite the difficulties, despite the hostility, they do not put their tools down. Perhaps They can just have an attitude of resignation. Oh, maybe this is not God's will. No. They are busy working. They're busy pushing. They know that, yes, God is great. God is awesome. But he's also sovereign. He is in control. And here's one thing you need to remember. God's sovereignty does not fight with our responsibility. That would be fatalism. It is thinking that if God is going to fight then I can go to sleep. He's God after all. He does what he pleases. That is true. But if that's your attitude that if God wills to do something, he will do it. That's not the whole truth. God is sovereign, but he also uses means. This thing of let go, let God, I don't see that in the Bible. But what we are seeing here is they are watching and working. That's what you see in verse 17. They are carrying burdens. They are doing the work. Look at verse 18. Each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside uh, me. You see in verse 1, they are laboring. They are removing their. Uh, none of them could remove their clothes. Verse 23. Now you may ask, which is which now? Are we trusting, trusting God or carrying a weapon? Are we trusting God or carrying a weapon? The answer to that question is yes. Let's not fall to the false dichotomy between the spiritual and the practical. Nehemiah didn't fall for that. I don't think God calls us to do that. Prayer and reasonable action are complementary responses. The go together, the go together, responsible or reasonable precautions are not a lack of faith. As these people are praying, are trusting God to protect them, they are also ready, they have weapons with them, they are working, they are trusting God, but also they are doing something about it. We pray And we fight, we wake, and we remember the Lord who is our great. Nehemiah perhaps was thinking, I don't know how this is going to work, but I'm going to keep doing what I can do. And I trust God he's going to do what only he can do. Yet at the same time, he's rallying people. People are putting their hands on the deck. They're not pulling back. They're not slowing down. They're not changing course. They keep doing the same thing. It's like sometimes parenting. You tell your child, stop, 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 stop. Okay, I've stopped. Three minutes later, they're doing again and again and again. You see what's the problem? Sometimes as Christians, we are looking for some clever strategies, like a silver bullet. There's none when it comes to our spiritual lives. Sometimes we're looking for shortcuts, aren't we? Some magic method. Some highway to spiritual power of overcoming sin. Making a difference. I want to make a difference for Jesus. Sometimes we think, I'm asking God for this. Boom, it's going to come. No, you know what you need to do? The Christian life is just a matter of doing the simple things today and you go to sleep. Next day, guess what you do? You do the very same things again. Trust in God that he is with you. He is for you. This is really the normal Christian life. It's about plodding. Plodding, laying a brick on top of another brick, the brick you laid yesterday. Don't back off, don't slow down. Open your Bible. Get yourself to Bible study. Get yourself uh, to our church. Feel like nothing is happening, do it again. Do that for the next 10, 15 years. You're trusting God for something and it seems like it's not happening, keep trusting God cry out to Jesus Christ. Serve where you can. And then do the very same again tomorrow. Is it not ironic that when most of us are struggling spiritually, it is because we are not doing the very simple things we are to be doing every day. Opening our Bibles, praying, fellowship with brothers and sisters. And do it again and again. The time is out. Let me just bring two applications to this. Number one, being a Christian is hard. Let's understand that always. This kingdom work is an overwhelming work. It challenges us, it shakes us to our very core. Sometimes it scares us. Just look at even your marriage. Sometimes, even to stay married can be hard. Raising a family, having children until you're an empty nester, is hard. It's overwhelming in these difficult times. It's frightening. Even here, I mean, now I understand that uh, in this part of the world, you don't just say, I'm married. I need to say, I'm married to a woman. Just because of this. Revolution has swapped this part of the world. And sometimes you can be overwhelmed. But again, you need to remember, there's a God that is in control, that is a sovereign. And all that are playing games with him, one day, they'll have their day in court with God. So let's keep plodding. Let's see this as an opportunity for us to reach out to them. It's gonna be hard, but let's not be a people that are just uh, passive. But ultimately, there's much that Nehemiah can do, but there's some things Nehemiah just cannot do. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus can pray the prayer that Nehemiah cannot do. Nehemiah prayed that my people and I have sinned. Jesus couldn't pray that prayer. Only Jesus Christ endured the punishment that sin deserves by dying on the cross. As Jeremiah went to Jerusalem to uh, restore the ruins, do you know why Jesus went? To do far more than that. He went to Jerusalem to die. And he was raised from the dead on the third day in order to give forgiveness of sins and bring about true restoration and to bring about the fullness of the blessings of God for wholeness, for shalom, to make a place for God's name to dwell forever. And all those who trust in Jesus Christ alone, it no, doesn't matter what you have done, immediately you can leave this place saved. If you have never placed your trust In Jesus Christ, you can come to faith today by simply acknowledging that you are a sinner and Jesus Christ alone is the great Savior. And when you do that, immediately, all the vast riches of Jesus Christ can be and will be deposited into your account. And if you're already a Christian, I encourage you to keep doing the very same things. Trust in God no matter how the difficulties may be. May the Lord strengthen you. May the Lord be with you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you may take this feeble presentation of truth And let it, Lord, sink in your people's hearts. For, Lord, I may only be able to reach their ears, but you are God that is able to do more than I have done. So I pray that each and every person in this place will examine themselves as to how they are responding to the difficulties that they may face. And above us, Lord, I pray that we'll be able to take our eyes off ourselves, and fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, who alone can save us, who alone can restore our lives, who alone can give us true satisfaction in this life. Father, thank you, we ask this, believing the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.